You remember a couple weeks ago when Brandon spoke and he confessed that when he read the text, he thought, oh my gosh, what has Lucas done to me? This is the most difficult text he possibly could have given me. But as he studied the text, it became kind of evident to him that there was so much joy and there was a gift, uh, multiple gifts inside that text. And it wasn't maybe what he thought it was before and it came to life for him in a new way. I had the same experience this week, maybe not exactly the same, something similar. I read the text that we're studying today and I thought, why did I give myself this text This is the most boring text I could have possibly given myself. I should have given this one to Brandon. But as I studied it, and as I got to know what Paul is doing here, and frankly, as Paul began to convince me personally that his argument is watertight and that we are all sinners in need of a savior and we need God to to put us right before him, I found myself up in my room, reading a few verses of scripture and weeping because of the grace of God. So I wanna do something a little bit different today. Note takers, I might make you a little anxious here, but I'd love it if you would close your notes. Keep your Bible open if you would. This might not be a note taking kind of day. We're not going to do the NLT, the New Lucas Translation. I just want to talk to you a little bit about my own personal journey through this text. And maybe, just maybe, at the end of our time today, you might have a similar kind of epiphany or experience that I did. And the grace of God may overwhelm you, bring you to your knees, and cause you to weep. So remember what we said at the outset of our study. Paul, the author of Romans, is four things. He is Jewish, he is zealous, he is transformed, and he is experienced. And we've talked about those transformed and experienced pieces at length, but I want to bring those first two to mind today because they're especially critical as we seek to understand this text today. Uh, When we say Jewish now, we likely mean something very different than when Paul said he was Jewish in first century Palestine. I want you to understand how Jewish Paul really is. And I wanna begin with his own words from Philippians three. He says, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's saying, not only am I a circumcised Jew, but I was circumcised on the appropriate day, the eighth day. Not only am I from the people of Israel, but I'm from the preferred tribe of Benjamin, one of only two that remained faithful when the kingdom split. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am the creme de la creme in regard to the law a Pharisee, so I'm not just a run-of-the-mill guy who follows the law, but I was a Pharisee, that is to say, I did everything that the law required. As for zeal, we'll come back to this one, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul's saying this, I'm not just Canadian. 
I was born on Parliament Hill with a hockey stick in one hand and a maple leaf in the other. And my first word was A. And my second word was sorry. No, sorry, you may not like that joke. I don't know. But Paul is saying through and through I'm Jewish. He viewed his entire world through the lens of the Hebrew faith. Now, a significant part of that Jewishness was Paul's adherence to and commitment to the law. Now, the law was and is the foundation of the Hebrew faith. God dictated it to Moses 50 days after the exodus from Egypt. It includes the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It includes stories of the beginnings of God's creation, the beginnings of the Hebrew people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It includes the story of the Exodus where God's people were enslaved for 430 years and God sent a redeemer named Moses to redeem them from slavery. And it includes 613 commandments that teach God's people how to live. But those commandments weren't just God's rules for life, right? It was what set the Hebrew people apart, what made them special, what made them unique from all the other nations. The importance of the law in the Jewish faith cannot be overemphasized. To talk about Jews and not talk about the law would be like talking about Christians and not talking about Jesus. Without the law, they were nothing. It's the Torah. The definition of God's moral expectations, the shape of community, it was everything for Paul and the rest of the nation of Israel. So much so that Paul became zealous for the law. You've likely heard people use that word zeal nowadays, and it means like passion or excitement, like I'm a zealous Raptors fan. But what we mean when we say zeal is that it carries with it the implication of violence. You heard Paul use that word about himself in Philippians 3, that as for zeal persecuting the church, what Paul is saying is that I was so passionate about my adherence to the law that I was willing to imprison, persecute, stand by and approve as people were killed and likely even kill people himself that didn't adhere strict enough to the law. Just pop quiz here, hotshots. What do we call a person these days that is so fanatical about their religion and the rules associated with them that they're willing to kill people who are part of their religion that aren't doing it exactly like they're doing it? ISIS, right? Terrorism. This was Paul before he met Jesus personally, but that's a story for a different day. So remember, what we have here is an individual who is Jewish through and through, and he is so incredibly zealous for the law that he's willing to purify his own people group in order to make sure that his whole people group adheres to the law. I just wanted to remind us of those two things before we get into the passage today. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, 
You've probably already heard Paul repeat that word law a couple of times. In the original Greek, it's nomos, and it means that five section uh, or five book section of scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this particular pericope or section of Romans is really going to focus on what the law is and does. I know that because Paul doesn't just repeat that word law here, 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 and here, but he repeats it here, and he repeats it here, and he repeats it here, and here, and here, and here. He repeats it here, and I think that's the last time he repeats it. Eleven times, as a matter of fact, in five verses. This is the first time that he'll mention this word law in the book of Romans. He'll mention it 70 times total in the book, 11 times in these five verses. Clearly, it's important to him. We know that from his history, his culture, his heritage, and his background. But we also know it here because Paul is going to talk about the implications of the law. And the way he starts is this way. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish Without the law, that word is a polemy and it means be destroyed, die, destruction, right? And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. We talked about this word last week. It's krino in the original Greek. Now, I'll be honest with you. This verse here is one of the most misunderstood verses by amateur theologians that I've ever heard. Here's how they understand it. What Paul is saying is this. Look, if you're a Jew and you have the law, you'll be judged more strictly than a Gentile who does not have the law. You, as a Jew, know what you ought to do and what you ought not do. 613 commandments in those five books. You know. So you're going to be judged more strictly than a Gentile. That is not what Paul is saying. The parallelism in this passage makes it very clear that this word judged, krino, and this word perish, apolemi, are synonyms. And he's saying, for all who have sinned without the law, Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, the end game for both of these people, whether you have the law or you don't, is bad is destruction, is peril, is hell and death and separation from God. Either way, whether you've got the law or you don't got the law, you're in trouble before God. And then he's going to talk to those two groups of people really specifically because the first group, his fellow Jews would say, God, I don't know, man, because we have the law. That's us. We're unique. We're special. They even boasted about it. We'll talk about that next week. And Paul says, no, no, no. Because why? It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law, dikaioo, justified, set right. Let me make my marker work here. Set right before God. Remember, imagining these concepts within the context of a courtroom. This is like a judge saying that you have been declared in right standing before me and before your community. And the people who would be set right before God are not the ones who hear it, but the ones who do it. This was a very popular notion among the 
ruling religious authorities in first century Jewish thought. I want to tell you a quick story just because I think it's really fascinating, really interesting. Remember, Paul trained as a Pharisee. His mentor was a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel, by 52 AD, had died. And so by the time 55, 56 AD rolled around, Paul's in Corinth. He's writing this book of Romans. He's become a Jesus follower. Gamaliel's son, a man named Simeon, had taken Gamaliel's place. In fact, Gamaliel's son, Simeon, had become the prince of the great Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin in Jewish thought and culture in the first century was like the Supreme Court and the executive branch and the police and the ruling religious authorities all rolled up into one. And Simeon, Gamaliel's son, was the prince, the president of the great Sanhedrin. It is strongly likely highly likely that Paul and Simeon would have known each other. Why? Because Paul trained as a Pharisee under Simeon's father, Gamaliel. Listen to what Simeon says about the law. It's one of his most famous quotes, not the expounding of the law is the chief thing, but the doing of it. And he that multiplies words occasions sin. So here's what, here's what we're arguing here, is that those who were in the know, the religious leaders and authorities in Jewish culture, would have read this verse and said, absolutely correct, Paul. And Paul is speaking, once again, from a Jewish and Pharisaical background. Not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. We agree with you, but the run-of-the-mill common Jewish person out there would have struggled with this pretty heavily. Here's why. Herman Ritterboss in his text uh, about Paul's theology argues that there were two ways in which the kind of the run of the mill common Jewish person had reduced and compromised the law. The first is called a quantitative reduction of the law. But what this person thought, this normal everyday person was, hey, uh, I, the law gives me 613 commandments, and as long as I do more good things than bad things, as long as I, as I do more of the stuff that I'm supposed to do and avoid the stuff I'm supposed to avoid, when, check this out, when God judges the secrets of man, this would have been a, this justice moment where God comes back and judges all people would have been common in Jewish thought. J Paul is using Jewish thought here. Just a quick side note. People say that one day God's going to come back and expose every motive and everything and everything's just going to be laid out on the table like a cow getting its guts cut open. Everything blah, just falls out everywhere. I shouldn't use that illustration, should I? Whatever, it's on tape now. That's what people think. And maybe that's possible. And maybe Paul's implying that here, but he's using a very Jewish notion because Jews would have thought, yes, God's gonna come back and judge the secrets of men. And when he judges me, he will find that I have done more good things than bad things. It's called a quantitative reduction of the law. The second way they compromised the law was called a qualitative reduction. That is to say the law is just for my external behavior. What I do on the outside. And Jesus comes along and says, it's not about what you do on the outside, it's about your heart. Paul comes along and says, it's not about circumcision on the outside, it's about circumcision of the heart. You may have heard that from other Paul's other letters. And Herman Ritterboss says that Paul is arguing for a quantitative radicalization and a qualitative radicalization of the law. He's saying the law is far more than one day more good stuff than bad stuff. Do people not think that way still? 
Human nature has changed zero in 2,000 years. One day, when everything is known, you know, I've done some bad stuff and I've said some wrong stuff, you know what? But one day, God's going to know I did more good things than bad, so I'm going to be good on the judgment day. If you believe that, do a little bit more introspection. The qualitative reduction of the law. I'm good on the outside, but, but I haven't done the real heart work. Paul says, it is not hearers, not those who can talk about the law. God does not judge men by their doctrine. It's not those who have memorized it. It's not those who know the original Greek words, yours truly. It's those who do the law. They will be justified. And friends, we are all in a world of hurt. This is the moment as I'm reading this text this week where I start to feel the weight of Paul's argument sit heavy on my own heart. I stopped caring about you for a minute because I'm reading this and I'm going, this is me. This is not me. I don't always do it. I fall short. The righteousness that the law requires is not mine to obtain because I cannot obtain it. Second group of people, Paul's Gentile audience. Say, hey, we don't have the law, so we're good. Paul addresses them too. Look what he says. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, this Greek word is phusis, P-H-Y-S-I-S. It's where we get our word for physics. By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though, that they, even though they don't have the law. So listen, here's what Paul is saying. He's calling on this common tradition in all of Greco-Roman culture. And for the Greeks, the notion of natural law or unwritten law was a very important idea. This is the law which natural reason establishes for all men. So Jews familiar with this tradition would have used this word to describe it, that there is kind of a natural law that all men know. There's kind of a set of standards and moral behaviors that all men know, whether they've been written down or not, whether they've been stipulated or articulated by a higher being or not. All men kind of know these things. In fact, Philo of Alexandria believed that the Mosaic law, nomos, those five books of the Bible, was basically a written record of the natural law that God had put on everybody's heart, believe it or not. So when Paul says that they do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they don't know the law, what he's saying is you might not have read it, it might not have been given to you, but you know it. You know in your heart, if you look deeply within your heart, you know what's right and wrong. In 2019, the University of Oxford released a paper called, Is It Good to Cooperate? Testing the Theory of Morality as Cooperation in 60 Societies. So the paper essentially revealed uh, the findings of the most comprehensive study of morality that we have ever undertaken as humankind. 
60 societies, over 600,000 words from 600 different sources. And you want to know what they found? That there are seven foundational moral statements that every society shares in common. Seven values that transcend time and space and language and age and culture. Here they are. Ready? Help your family, help your group, return favors, be brave, defer to superiors, divide resources fairly, and respect others' property. Seven rules that everybody agrees upon. Every culture, every society, seven moral values. Who taught us these rules? Like, where do they come from? How is it that they transcend societies and cultures and language and time and space and age? In other words, every society throughout recorded history says, yep, those seven things, those things are good things. Why? Because the work of the law is written on their hearts. Because from the foundation of time, God built that into the very fabric of every human being a moral compass, right and wrong. And we would push back against that today and we say, oh, you know what? There's a lot of people out there that are moral kind of relativists. No, that person doesn't exist because, listen, let me read C.S. Lewis. I'll just read an extended quote from Lewis. This helps, ready? The most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining. It's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. A nation may say treaties do not matter, but then the next minute they spoil their case by saying that the particular treaty they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties do not matter, and there's no such thing as right and wrong, in other words, if there is no law of nature, what's the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair one? Have they not let the cat out of the bag and shown that whatever they say, they really know the law of nature just like anyone else? It seems then that we are forced to believe in a real right and wrong. There are evidences like this and examples like this all over the place that there is true right and wrong, a true moral compass. We may disagree as to what that is, but that law has been written on the hearts of man and if you're honest with yourself, this part of you, your conscience bears witness and it tells you, you stand accused and you have no excuse. So what Paul is saying here is that when your conscience is pricked, that moment when you do something and you're you kind of go, eh, I know that by your very conscience, by that very act of feeling guilt or shame or your conscience is pricked, you acknowledge that such a moral law exists, whether you've been given it or not, whether you know it's written down or not. And your conscience bears witness that it exists and you are a lawbreaker. And he says your conflicting thoughts might accuse or even excuse you when that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that your thoughts accuse you or excuse you in reality. He's saying that your conflicting thoughts don't really do either of these things because you can't keep your thoughts straight about right and wrong anyway. I want to tell you why this passage hit me this week, and then I want to read it one more time so we all get a picture of what Paul's doing here. The passage hit me this week because I'm beginning to believe Paul. 
that we are a lawbreaker, that I am a lawbreaker, and I stand before God condemned. Paul writes this. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. His Jewish listener would have responded, but I see I have the law. I listen to the law. I talk about the law. Paul says, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified, which of course no one does. What about Gentiles who don't have the law? Well, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law into themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here's the deal. We have to remember that Paul is building a case here. We're studying this section by section, pericope by pericope, and we're drilling down to kind of the, to the granular details of each one. And it's kind of fun. But when Paul's original listener, or original reader would have read or listened to this, they would have read it in its entirety. And the first three chapters of Romans is Paul building his case for what's called the depravity of man. We are all corrupt. We are all lawbreakers. We are all not in right standing before God. And here's why I got emotional this week, because I'm starting to buy it. Some of you are saying, what do you mean starting to buy it? Luke, you've become a Christian. You've been a Christian for a while. You have to kind of buy this thing. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I get that. But it, it, it hit me again. The, the waves of, of corruption and depravity that are in my own heart. The ways that I buy into a 2,000-year-old goofy line of thinking called the quantitative reduction of the law. I do more good things than bad. The way I buy into a 2,000-year-old goofy train of thought called a qualitative reduction of the law. It's all about what I do on the outside, and it's, it's not about my heart. And this brilliant, God-given, Spirit-filled apostle, inspired by God, is making an argument that all of my rebuttals or responses to not being in right standing before God fall short. Well, I have the law, but do you do it? Well, I guess not. Oh, I don't have the law, but you're a law in and of yourself, and your conscience bears witness that such a law exists. You're a lawbreaker. You know right and wrong. Yeah, that's true. And I feel like I'm getting kicked when I'm down every time I pick up Romans chapter 1 through 3. I mean, this is like Paul telling us we're bad, we're bad, we're bad. But he wants to convince us. He wants to persuade us. He wants to bring us to the, the, the depths of our own sin and corruption and brokenness and depravity and go, I've got no hope. And then he wants to get us to the end of chapter 3. So we got we to gotta jump ahead. We got to jump ahead because Paul is going to give us some hope. Listen very closely to what he writes. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, anytime Paul uses those words, but now, or but God, your ears should perk up, pay attention. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Remember who we're talking about now. 
his whole life governed by the law, his whole life shaped by the law, his love for the law, his zeal for the law, his commitment to the law, his adherence to the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law and prophets bear witness to it, he says in the second half of verse 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what Paul is convincing me of and hopefully he's convincing you of as well. But are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We stand before God accused, condemned. As one uh, ancient, ancient, old school preacher used to say, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. We are deserving of his wrath. We are deserving of punishment. But God put forward his own son so that he could be just towards sin and pour out his justice on his son rather than pouring out justice on us whom he loves and resurrected his son so that his son now is seated at the right hand of God and he is our justifier. He puts us in right standing before him, declares us justified and righteous because of his grace through faith. It's not of our works. It's nothing that we've done. It's got nothing to do with the law. And the guy who loved the law more than anything. Let's just, let's go back to Philippians 3. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3. Check it out. Okay. I myself have confidence in the flesh also. I've been circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We already read this, but listen to what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count him as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see it, O Christian? Do you see it, O you who have wavered because you see yourself as a lawbreaker? Do you see it? Do you see it, O non-believer in Christ whose conscience is pricked? Do you see it? that all of us are equal before God and we're not in good shape. But because of his grace, he has saved you and he sustains you. He has set you right in his eyes and he will complete the work that he started in you by his grace, not because of the law. So whether you think you've lived up to the standard, you haven't. Whether you know you haven't lived up to the standard, you haven't. And whether you've tried to live up to the standard and have wavered and wavered and wavered like Martin Luther did, Paul wants to speak life and hope and joy into your soul by saying your righteousness doesn't come from the law. Your right standing before God doesn't come because you adhere to a moral code. It comes from God's declaration, his gracious declaration over you that you are in right standing before me. So lift your voice, O believer in Christ. 
Lift your heart, those who have wavered. Lift your eyes, those who have looked away. Lift your countenance, those who feel the shame of sin. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, and you have been put right with God by His grace, grace through faith in Christ. Confess your sin, know His grace, and sing of His goodness.